Please open a Bible up to Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to begin at verse 18. If you're using the church Bibles, that'll be found on page 72. Last spring, we started a series working through the book of Exodus. We slowed down last fall to look at the Ten Commandments. And now after a little bit of a break, we are back in the book of Exodus. And if you're someone who likes schedules, I think maybe a dozen more sermons should get us through the rest of the book. This morning we begin our reading in Exodus 20 directly after God has spoken the Ten Commandments to Israel assembled at the foot of Mount Sinai. We begin immediately with Israel's response, and then we're going to read uh, verse 18 all the way through verse 26, God's first instruction to the nation of Israel. Hear now the reading of God's word from Exodus 20, 18 through 26. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you wield your tool on it, you shall profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is God's word. It may be helpful to keep that passage open as we work through it together this morning. My outline is simple. I want you to see three things that God gives to his people from this passage. God gives tests, God gives signs, and God gives his presence. God gives tests, signs, and his presence. Have you ever tried to stand under a waterfall? For whatever reason, on family vacation growing up, uh, it always featured at least one hike to a waterfall, and I suppose my kids would say the same of our vacations now. And if the pool's not deep enough to dive into, inevitably, you wind up seeing if you can stand under the waterfall, or at least I inevitably did. I don't know if this is your experience. You come up to the edge of the water, especially if it's high volume, and maybe put your hand in first to see how strong it's going to be. And if you think you can take it, then you brace yourself with your feet and kind of edge into the water to see how it goes. And you feel the power of the waterfall on your shoulders. We sort of do the same thing with bonfires, don't we? A big pile of stumps gets burning, and we can get close for a few seconds, and then feel the heat on our face, and we got to pull back from the bonfire before we get burnt. Something like that is happening here at Exodus 20. In Exodus 19, God came to Mount Sinai to meet with Israel. 
There's thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and very loud trumpet blast, so loud that the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brings the people out of the camp to the foot of the mountain to meet with God. He's leading them to see how close they can get to God's presence. And God warns them, just come to the foot. Don't come on the mountain, lest you be consumed. Just as God appeared to Moses as a self-sustaining fire in the bush, in the wilderness, then God descends on Mount Sinai in fire, and the whole mountain is wrapped in smoke, and the trumpet sound keeps getting louder and louder. And then Moses spoke to God, and God answered him in thunder. Israel puts their hand in the waterfall to feel the pressure. They see how close they can get to the bonfire. And it's not just hearing God's word. That's part of it. But they experience God's presence in a palpable way. And after God speaks only 10 words, we see Israel's response here in verses 18 and 19. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. What they saw scared them. They were afraid and trembled. What they heard made them fear for their lives. Don't let God speak directly to us again, lest we die. Israel came face to face with a visible manifestation of the reality of God, and it shook them to their very core. God is in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. He's the being who gives being to all things, the creator who sustains everything. He is almighty, incomprehensible, perfectly righteous, just, and holy. And what happens at Mount Sinai is a bit like sticking just the tip of your finger into Niagara Falls. It's just seeing a little bit of what God's presence manifested is like. The thunders and lightning and fire and smoke, it's like Israel standing at the foot of a volcano, and yet it's just a hint of God's immensity and power. The perfect God's presence is frightening. Indeed, it's threatening to less than perfect people. The awesome presence of God is terrifying. And it's not just a problem for Israel, it's a problem for us. How can we encounter the living God, who is infinite in being, glory, perfection, who is perfectly holy and righteous and just without being consumed? Well, in verse 20, Moses reframes the entire experience. It is indeed a terrifying ordeal, but he says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Do you see the first thing God gives? Moses said God gives tests. God gives tests to his people. This is a trying encounter, but this trying encounter is a test that's meant to teach Israel, to show them something about themselves and something about God's nature. Paradoxically, Moses says, don't fear. God's testing you so that you will fear him. Don't fear. You're meant to learn to fear. 
uh, don't fear, but learn to fear the right thing. Or to put it the other way around, if you fear God himself, you need not fear anything else. Uh, several times in our reflections on the book of Exodus, we've talked about the fear of God. And you may recall that the fear of God brings together two ideas, what we call fear and what we call awe. Those two ideas come together in the fear of God. Uh, we've used the illustration a few times that I borrowed from Dave Klein that the fear of God is like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking over, and there's awe and wonder at how majestic the canyon is, how big it is. And yet at the same time, at least if you're sane, there's a little bit of fear, right? There's a little bit of trepidation. You realize this is a serious thing. It's not a place to mess around with your brother. Uh, maybe even a little bit of vertigo, that kind of thing. Uh, there's awe and fear that come together. And that's what the fear of the Lord is about. It's awe in his presence, and yet a recognition, recognition that there's something serious, uh, something to fear. It's a fear that drives out all other fears. The other uh, illustration I've used is you might be afraid of heights and scrambling on rocks, but if you encounter a grizzly bear out in the wilderness, the fear of the grizzly bear is going to drive you up the rocks, even though you fear that. Okay? The fear of God, fearing the right thing, drives out all the other fears. Well, we read in verse 21 that the people stood afar, far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The people retreat from the foot of the mountain back to camp, thoroughly shaken, but Moses goes higher up. He wants to see how close he can get. He ascends further up the mountain into the thick darkness where God was. Well, that's well and good for Moses, but what about the rest of us? How can we draw near to God without being undone? How can we encounter God's presence without being shaken to the core like Israel, without being filled with fright? In Exodus 19, God told Israel that they would be his treasured possession, that he would dwell with them in intimacy. They would be his beloved people. And yet, how can a fallible, fallen, broken human live in ongoing close proximity with the holy God? How can mere creatures live with their creator? Well, that's precisely the issue that God addresses in his first set of instructions to Moses in verses 22 through 26. Before he gives out any other commands about how to live together as a people, God gives Israel signs. God gives Israel signs. That's the second thing he gives that I want you to see this morning. God gives signs. Or more precisely, he forbids one kind of sign and he commands another kind of sign. These instructions are grounded in Israel's experience. You see that in verse 22. Back in Exodus 19, God told Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God tells Moses to tell Israel, You have seen for yourselves my powerful works of redemption, delivering you from bondage, bringing you to myself. And now here in Exodus 20, 22, God tells Moses, here the words are almost exactly the same, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked to you from heaven. You saw my mighty acts in Egypt and at the Red Sea. 
now you have also seen my authoritative word. Israel's learning what it means that their God is the Lord. It means he's mighty and powerful and in control of all things, but it also means that he speaks authoritatively. Since Israel has only seen a voice from heaven, therefore God says, you shall not make gods for yourself of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. It's absurd on the face of it to make a god. A god who is made is indeed no god at all. In ancient religions, uh, carved statues or idols were thought to mediate the presence of that god. Uh, I don't know if this illustration makes sense, but it's a bit like the bat phone. Remember in the old Batman, Commissioner Gordon could get on the bat phone and get directly to Batman. But that's kind of what it's like. You go in the temple and here's this carved statue, or maybe you have a little carved statue at home, and it's a way to get direct access to your god wherever they dwell. The statue shows that the God is present with you. We do the same thing, but in more sophisticated ways. We think that money or success or youth or beauty or health are signs of God's presence and favor. If we have these things in our life, then surely God is with us. But here in this first instruction, Israel is forbidden from making these sorts of signs for God's presence. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses explains, Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Mount Sinai out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making carved images for yourself. Of course, this is just echoing the first two commandments that we looked at last fall, isn't it? To not make idols, to not have any other gods alongside the true God. Then how can we draw near to God? How can God be present with us? First, God accepts Israel's suggestion that Moses act as a go-between, listening to God and speaking to Israel. Uh, they say, you talk to God for us, don't let him talk directly to us or we'll die. And what do we see in verse 22? The Lord speaks to Moses and he says, go tell Israel this. So the first way God can be present with his people is through a mediator who goes back and forth, who brings his word from God to the people. But then second, God gives Israel a sign. They shall not make gods of silver or gold, but they shall make altars of earth. Altars, not idols, are the simple signs of God's presence. Israel is allowed to build altars out of either uh, packed earth or unhewn, raw, uncut stone. Uh, the reason for the uncut stone seems to be that the altar, uh, avoiding the altar getting so fancy that the altar itself becomes a sort of idol. The altar ought not be ornate. It should be simple. Nor uh, does he say, should you go up steps so that your nakedness not be exposed uh, over the altar. A little bit later in Exodus, when there's all the instructions for clothing of the priests, they solve this by saying the priest should wear underpants, and so that issue gets resolved. But the point underlying this is that there should be no hint of unseemliness. Uh, this sort of worship at the altar is simple and sacred, but doesn't involve the sorts of orgies that surrounding cultures would engage in at their altars. The altar ought not be ornate because the altar alone is not the sign, but rather what takes place on the altar. Sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep, 
and your oxen. Admittedly, sacrifice is one of the strangest aspects of ancient religion, at least for modern people. It's hard to get our heads around it. Although part of the problem is perhaps that we've lost a sense of the importance of sacrifice in general, all forms of sacrifice. It's interesting in scripture, there's never a passage where God tells people, start offering me sacrifices. Right from the get-go, Cain and Abel, the first story outside the Garden of Eden, they're there making offerings to the Lord. It simply seems to be a human instinct that we ought to offer some sort of offering or sacrifice to our God. And so cultures around the world for many, many years have offered a variety of sacrifices. At its core, sacrifices are simply the religious preparation of foodstuff, usually meat, but sometimes grain or wine, and a portion is offered to God. Especially the meat sacrifices recognize that something has to die in order for us to eat. And in the peace offering, part of the animal is cooked and eaten by the family that comes to worship, and the other portion is burnt on the altar. That meal is a sign of communion with God. It's a meal that you have together with God. Well, sacrifice is just sort of up and running from Genesis 4 onward. It's a, it's a generic human impulse. But there's a number of stories throughout the Old Testament that unpack the meaning of this sign for us. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob set up altars and offer sacrifices at places where they encounter God's presence in some particularly profound way. But perhaps the story that most clearly conveys the logic of sacrifice is the harrowing account of Abraham's encounter with God in Genesis 22. Uh, in that story, Genesis 22, there's actually a lot of overlap with our text this morning. That same language of God testing Abraham appears, and the key thing that God sees is that Abraham fears God, just as Israel is tested so that they will fear God. You may recall in that test, God asks Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. It's a harrowing story. It's challenging at another level, a number of levels, and it'll have to wait for another time to fully unpack. But the key thing I want you to catch this morning is that the story in Genesis 22 shows us that the logic of sacrifice turns on substitution. God initially says, offer Isaac as a sacrifice, but then he provides a ram as a substitute for Isaac. The lesson he's driving home to Abraham, and indeed the lesson that gets taught to Israel, is that the sacrifice is a substitute for you. So we uh, read earlier in Exodus, I think chapter 13, that the uh, firstborn belongs to the Lord, the firstborn animal is sacrificed, the firstborn of your human children you redeem by offering a sacrifice in their place, a substitute. But remember, the altar and sacrifices are signs, not the thing in itself. They're signs that point to a reality beyond themselves. Israel understood, at least at its best, that it was God who made atonement, who made a covering for all their sins. The sacrifice of the animal in and of itself doesn't purify or make holy, but rather it's a sign pointing to the reality of God's mercy, that God is willing to accept a substitute. It's a sign that ultimately points ahead to Good Friday, when God makes a way for us to draw near to him by offering himself as a substitute in our place. The death of Jesus is the one true sacrifice that makes all the other sacrifices effective. 
insofar as they are signs pointing forward to Christ's sacrifice, Israel's sacrifices are acts of true worship. The holy God takes up a human nature, lives a perfectly human life, and offers himself as a substitute for us, taking our guilt and shame and the punishment we deserve so that fallen, sinful, guilty, rebellious humans can live in the presence of the true and holy God. In Exodus, God gave Israel these simple signs, an unadorned altar where sincere sacrifices are a way to draw near to him. They're signs pointing forward to Christ. But then Jesus also gives the church simple signs, signs that point back to the work that Christ has already done. The simple signs Christ gives the church are baptism and communion. Baptism is just a bit of water, uh, washing with a bit of water, an ordinary everyday act, just like butchering and cooking meat in sacrifice is an everyday ordinary act. But baptism is also a sign that points beyond itself to a profound reality. It marks the one baptized as belonging to God, as united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. It's a sign that the old self is washed away, that the new creation has been made. Likewise, the Lord's Supper that we'll eat together in a few moments is a simple, even meager meal. A bit of bread, a little wine. But Christ commands us, do this in remembrance of me. In breaking the bread and pouring the wine, we declare Christ's death until he returns. Eating the bread and drinking the cup are signs that Christ's life is given to us. God gives us simple signs so that we can draw near to him. But that's not all. That's not all. As we end, I want you to notice, nestled in this passage, the second part of verse 24, is a profound promise. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Here's the third thing that God gives. God doesn't just give us signs pointing somewhere else. God gives us his presence. God gives us his presence. This little promise in verse 24 is profound. The God who has spoken from heaven, whose voice is like thunder, promises to be present at the most humble pile of dirt where a sacrifice is a simple meal is eaten in his name. When God's people use the simple signs he gives to worship in spirit and in truth, God promises to be present with them. The simple sign, the altar, is in fact a two-way street. The sacrifice goes up to the Lord, but the Lord promises to come down and be present with his people, and he promises to bless them. Before God gives any specific laws to Israel that we're going to look at in the following chapters, he first and foremost gives his presence to Israel. He gives himself to his people. He makes a way for his people to live in communion with him. It's only from within this context of divine faithfulness that human faithfulness is possible. We can only obey God's commands because God has already made a prior commitment to be present with us. Obedience is only possible as a response to God's presence. And this same promise that I will come to you and bless you applies to the simple signs which God has given to the church, to baptism in the Lord's Supper. In the Reformed tradition of which this church is a part, we affirm this by the language of saying Christ is really present 
at the Lord's Supper. Christ is really present at baptism. He is really spiritually present here in this meal we're about to eat. Baptism is a sign, but it's not just a sign. It's a seal of the covenant. And God is really present working through the sign of baptism. It's mysterious, and the sign isn't so tightly linked to the spiritual reality that baptism somehow automatically makes something happen, but God is really present, and he promises to be at work through the sign of baptism, and the grace given at baptism, as it's appropriated by faith across our lifetimes. Likewise, the Lord's Supper we're about to eat, it is a sign, but not just a sign. Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I with them. The promise of Exodus 20 applies to this meal as well. God says, when you eat this simple meal, I will come to you and bless you. When we gather together for worship each week, we are called into the presence of the holy God. Like Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, we encounter the awesome presence of God here in this place. The question is, how then shall we respond? How will we respond? For some of us, even coming to church might be a test. It's a challenging encounter. It's mysterious, perhaps even frighteningly strange, perhaps a bit awkward. But will we learn to fear God? Will we stand far off and remove ourselves from this challenging encounter? Or will we draw near to where God is? The question is, will we make faithful use of the simple signs God has given us, the ordinary means of grace? We might be able to think of much more ornate buildings to worship in. We might be able to think of much more splendid ways to worship God, and yet what he has given us is simple signs. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, reading a book, praying together, encouraging one another. These simple acts are the ordinary means that God has given us to have his grace, to receive his grace. So the question is, will we make diligent use of these signs he has given to us? In obedience, will we draw near to God through the simple signs he has given us so that he will be present with us and bless us? Let us pray together. Almighty God, I think we can forget what an awesome thing it is that we are called into your presence week after week. What an awesome thing it is that you, the God who sustains all things, who has made the largest supernovas and the laws of gravity and the planets and solar systems and indeed the whole universe, that you, the God who has made all things, promises to be present with us as we join together in simple worship according to your word. For some, perhaps this encounter is a test. Be at work by your Holy Spirit, helping them to respond well, to respond to your offer to be present with them. For others of us, Lord, perhaps it's become humdrum, or we've neglected to make use of the simple signs you have given us. May we be challenged by your word to be faithful, to draw near to your presence through the means that you have given to us. But above all, Lord, may the reality that these signs point to, that you came to be present with us through Christ Jesus, that you offered yourself as a substitute in our place, 
And so Christ Jesus, our great high priest, has reconciled us to you so that we can live with you. Let that reality be ever before our eyes. Apply that truth to our hearts in an ever deeper way this morning. Amen.